When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Humans of Speedway, the podcast which gives you the chance to get to know the stars and unsung heroes of one of the most exhilarating sports in the world. My guest in this episode is Chris Louie. As the son of one of the best-known riders of the 1970s, former British champion and world number three, John Tiger Louie, the sport was always going to be in Chris's blood. And Chris very much followed in his dad's footsteps by himself becoming British champion and reaching world number three. He was also captain of what many believe to be British Speedway's best ever team, the Ipswich side of 1998, a team which featured the likes of Thomas Golub and world champion of that year, Tony Ricardson. And they went on to claim an unprecedented League and Cup treble. He rode in the Speedway Grand Prix Series for seven years, right from its first years in 1995, and including being part of the very first Cardiff Grand Prix. Since his riding days, his involvement with the Witches has continued as team manager and now co-promoter of the team, and Chris is also at the top table of the sport in the UK as a director of British Speedway Promoters Limited. And as well as getting to know more about Chris's career, we'll also discover what his dream meeting would look like and who would make his dream team. Team. So, uh, with that in mind, um, welcome, Chris. Do you, do you know much about Speedway? Not a lot, no. <laughs> you make it sound like I should, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that you do. Let's start at the the very beginning. Obviously, we know how you would have got involved in Speedway because your dad was right at the the top of his game in in your younger years. But what are your earliest memories of of Speedway and and of your dad riding and and of that sport being? Uh, around your family, of course, at that time. Well, my, my earliest memories don't in- include watching much Speedway, to be honest. It was more <laughs> running around trees with a Coke can on my foot, pretending to be a Speedway rider. So, um, <laughs> you know, obviously it was in my blood from the very beginning. And um, I, I guess, um, I think I was probably, someone will correct me if I'm wrong, but I was five or six years old um, walking down to the Twin Towers at Wembley to watch the 75 final that Dad obviously came third in. And um, that that is probably one of my earliest memories as far as Speedway goes. It was such a massive thing. I mean, I, I don't know what the crowd was that day, but it was 90-odd thousand, I guess. Um, mm. So to be walking down there in amongst that lot um, was really quite special. Yeah, and, and that would have been a similar time. You'd be, what, five, six years old, as you mentioned. Your dad was a British champion then and really, you know, at the top of the sport in, in this country. And what what were the memories of uh, of how that changed things, you know, him becoming British champion and uh, the extra maybe um, focus that, that that brought him? Yeah, I mean, even as a youngster, obviously I was very young, so I don't fully appreciate it, certainly didn't mm. at the time. But, um, you know, I think even then I noticed the, there was greater media attention. I mean, it was you know, national and, and world media that were sort of talking to him um, then. So, uh, yeah, it, it was noticeable, you know, people, different strangers coming to the house and things that maybe wasn't quite so apparent before. So, yeah, it did it did make a change, um, obviously, to Dad's life and, and to the whole family, really. And well, I've spoken to one or two riders who've had parents involved in the sport. I think Calvin Tatum was, was one of them, where um, his dad was a, a really good um, grass track rider, well-known grass track rider, but sort of discouraged Kelvin a little bit from, you know, getting fully involved, perhaps. Was that the same with you? Did your dad actively encourage you to get involved in Speedway or was it one of those kind of, you don't want to get involved in this business, son? Get yourself a proper job. How, how was it? Certainly dad didn't discourage me from from getting into Speedway, but but I don't think there was any... any um sort of encouragement I guess there was there was, mm. there was there was no push to be a speedway rider it was just a case of you know do what you enjoy and and you know um I enjoyed riding bikes from when I think I had my first motorbike when I was about three years old so um it was in my blood right from the beginning and uh yeah I just I went off I rode um rode for fun I rode then I rode grass track competitively till I was 13 I think 
Um, I'd had a little bit of a go at trials, but it wasn't quite quick enough for me. Um, <laughs> and then when I won the British Championship at grass track, I went off and raced motocross. Um, yeah, so I, Speedway wasn't really on the agenda at all. I, I Literally, it was just one day I woke up and I'd had a couple of injuries racing motocross, um, namely my knee, which was always going to give me a problem. And um, I phoned a mate one day, um, borrowed a van, um, stole my dad's bike that he'd kept, the old Westlake, from his from his last racing season. Um, and we, we made our way down to Hackney, got lost on the wave, middle of London, trying to find out where we were going, and, and had a practice session down there, and that's where it all started, really. Wow, what a machine to start on, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Wesley. Yeah, it was it was good, not particularly reliable. I have to say, we, neither of us at that time had any clue about a speedway bike or how it operated. So we were getting a lot of advice once we got down to the practice session at Acne. But um, it, it was a good day. Um, I, I got back, parked the bike in the in the workshop. Typical um, teenager at the time didn't didn't bother to wash it or anything. And Dad came in the house a couple of days later, having got having gone in the garage and said, uh, "My bike's dirty. Have you been out on it?" <laughs> <laughs> how do you explain that one it's uh, the, the evidence is kind of there isn't it <laughs> yeah it is yeah so uh yeah that that was that was it i had about three practice sessions i think ahead of the um 88 season at hackney and um and that, that was that was me started in between i went off and done the dakar which was a quite a big thing at, at that age to be doing so uh yeah it was a, it was a, a big year for me or, or everything going on so bikes were a were a, a a big part of your life, of course. It was more kind of the which sort of discipline you were you were going to follow. And you mentioned the the, the Dakar there, which, um, as you say, a big thing to do. And is that something you've ever thought of doing since? Is where did that fit into your life? Well, yeah. I mean, the guy that I did it with, um, Dick Partridge, he he did mention to me a couple of years ago that it was the thirtieth anniversary since we actually did it, and. Uh, he did sort of say in the year leading up to that, fancy doing it again, we'll, we'll celebrate the anniversary. And I have to say, it was really hard to turn down. I, I was so keen, but um, sort of looking at the finances and looking at everything else I had to do and, and the time it was going to take um, wasn't really wasn't really on the cards. But um, I have to say, you know, as things calm down later on in life, it's hard to do as you get older, but um, I, I'd still consider it. <laughs> don't rule it out just yet um, we, we hear a lot of uh, stories of people doing grass track and then finding speedway and then not looking back particularly I mean I know there's a lot of riders that still do both but um, speedway um, certainly a lot smoother on the uh, on the joints <laughs> if nothing else but a great training ground though for a lot of great speedway riders over the time and something that maybe is not producing um, new talent maybe quite as much as it as it used to would you say Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the numbers just aren't there. You know, the amount of clubs and the amount of riders is nothing like it was when when I was a youngster. So um, it, it's diminished to a point where uh, you know it's not um, pro- sort of really providing any riders to speedway. So um, we have to look towards other other sports um, that, that obviously have um, kids racing, na- namely motocross. That's where um, well, that's actually where Dad came from in the first place. Uh, all those years ago and and in effect you could say I did too because that's 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 what I was doing when I when I then decided to take up speedway so um and it's it's the main sort of breeding ground for the youngsters now that we could get involved in speedway and there was a program um I would say probably 10 10 12 years ago where we looked at the motocross um sort of fraternity and and started to to bring a few over and um, quite successfully some very good riders have got motocross backgrounds that we're now watching um, and I think it's something that we need to revisit for sure. And we've seen this a few times with other riders I've spoken to. They go along to a training school or whatever and you get spotted and, and naturally you progress into the team. And, and that's what's happened with you with uh, with Hackney. Yeah, that was, um, as I said, I went down, had about three practice sessions that winter and Dave Pavitt was uh, promoter then. And um, along with Dad, Mike Weston, Gary Muckley, there was, there was a few involved down at Hackney at the time. And um, he... Uh, yeah, Dave dragged me in the office and said, look, we'll, we'll give you a team spot. And I said, yeah, you know, when he had three practice sessions, <laughs> um, it's a bit early days for that. And he, he was adamant that uh, that he wanted to do it. So uh, we had a, a probably about a half hour chat and I said, well, look, you know, I don't have a bike. I don't have a van <laughs> making demands already. I haven't even ridden. Um, so he provided one of the bikes and I had to provide the van. Um, and uh, yeah, I went away all smiles thinking, okay, I'm going to be a speedway rider. And 
Uh, Dad had no idea at that stage. So then when he was told, he he was adamant that it was far too early. I'd only ridden the bike three times and there's no way I could go into competitive racing um, the following season. But he lost out on that one and that's where it started. And it was a decent start, a very decent team in 19. 19- 88 at Hackney because you became National League champion and you also won the Knockout Cup as well. And uh, when you hear some of the names in that team, then um, you'll probably not be surprised at the success. Uh, can you remember some of your teammates from from that era at Hackney? Um, oh God, I hope I can remember everybody. There was myself, Andy Galvin, uh, Mark Lorham, uh, Alan Mogridge, Paul Whitaker, uh, Gary Rolls, um, Paul Bosley. Uh, that's seven. I think we we alternated a couple of reserves, so there was probably someone else. But um, yeah, oh Barry Thomas, how can I forget Baz? Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, it, it was it was a good side. Obviously, it, it won um, the triple or double or whatever it was in those days. Um, but it, more importantly, for, for me particularly, as a sort of first time, a first year, it was a fun side. You know, everybody was just behind behind everybody, and particularly me because I was very very new to the sport. Um, and yeah, I think it was those guys that, that kind of moulded my career, really, and the start that they gave me and all the help they gave me. Yeah, I think you tend to find that, I think, in any walk of life. You know, the people who are there right at the very start, and you know, you make that good group of friends, they stick with you. And that's important with Speedway and not just with other riders, but I suppose mechanics and other people that Speedway riders work with, you tend to find that quite a lot of them do stick with riders through the course or certainly through a good part of their career as well. Did you have a particular mechanic team, um, not necessarily a team that you had all the time, but go-to mechanics that helped you out through the course of the seasons? Yeah, I mean, there, there was sort of one man that, that um, was the constant for me. Um, ironically, when, when I had that first year at Hackney, um, sort of very disorganised, having had no experience and no time really to prepare for it, going off for the, the Dakar as well in between, took another six weeks, uh, probably more, two months out of, out of my sort of prep time for that. So um, literally only weeks uh, before the first meeting at Hackney that year, I, I asked a, a local guy, uh, Nigel Wells, uh, you know, look, you've got a tiny bit of experience mechanically. He was he worked in a car garage, but he'd helped someone with grass track, uh, Lawrence Bloomfield, and uh, and he said, look, you know, I'll come and give you a hand if you've got no one, but you need to sort someone out because I'm I'm not the man for the job. He said, I'll give you a couple of weeks to to sort yourself out, and uh, you know, he was still there twenty odd years later at, at the end, so um, <laughs> he's no, no longer with us, unfortunately, but. Uh, yeah, he, he he was a great guy. He he was someone. He's that constant. I think every rider should um, try to have. It's not always possible, of course. Life changes things. But uh, for me, you know, I knew right all the way through my career that he was right beside me, and he would be honest with me. So if it came down to you know me wanting to blame, I don't know the bikes, whatever. Um, if it was, he'd be honest. If it wasn't, he'd also be honest and say, no, you need to sort yourself out, you know, <laughs> you need to start riding properly. So, uh, you know, I could always trust what, what he had to say. It, it was great. It's almost like a golfer and caddy kind of relationship, isn't it? I think in, in some ways as well, especially when you've got that same person who's with you meeting after meeting. Yeah, it's that constant. It's that 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 face that you can trust. And, um, you know, many a time in in. Good, bad, indifferent, difficult situations. You know, I could sit in my pitch pit chair and look up and um, listen to what he had to say. And you know, as a rider, you need to be strong in in your own decisions. And and he never, it would never put doubt in my mind. You know, if I knew what I wanted, great. He would just get on with the job. Um, if he could see I was indifferent towards something, he he would just help me make that decision, basically. And what help he had as well, because. Having only started in Speedway in 1988, by 1990, a world under 21 champion. And then by 1991, you're in a British final and you're on the podium alongside Kelvin Tatum and Gary Havelock. I mean, what a, what a rise. Uh, yeah, I, to be honest, I don't remember too much about it, but I know it was a big day. I mean, those, those British final days were, were something else. You know, going to Coventry um, was, was just something special. I mean, you know, the, the crowd was massive. You, you drive up. Um, I, I can't remember the, the roads used now. It wasn't the A14 all the way, but, um, you know, you, you drive up the A45 or whatever it was uh, in them days to Coventry and there'd, there'd be Ipswich flags hanging out of windows. You know, you'd, you'd pass um, dozens and dozens of cars that, that were all going to Coventry. And um, and it was the same for every rider, wherever wherever they were coming from, they would, they would have their fans on the road. And um, 
They, they were special days, they really were. Up go the tapes and away they roar and straight away it's Doncaster and Andy Smith. Doncaster and Andy Smith driving into the first and second turn and Chris Louie taking the inside line and Chris Louie drives underneath Doncaster. So Chris Louie back to pole position. Doncaster second, Andy Smith third and number seven on its back. It's Chris Louie who gets to the checker flag who wins. Jeremy Doncaster in second place and in third place was Andy Smith. The British final remains a massive part of British Speedway's calendar, but when we look back at that era of Coventry and the British finals in the 80s and the 90s, and it was also a, a stepping stone for any Brit who wanted to be world champion. You, you had to come through that event, so it also had that riding on it as well. And a huge meet-up of Speedway fans from around the country, perhaps a void that's been filled by Cardiff to an extent, but as a rider, you must have obviously felt that sense of a massive occasion too. Yeah, I think throughout um, the 80s, uh, well, previous to that, of course, as well, but but certainly right right up until through the 90s, um, you went to a to a British final, and and the lineup was packed with world genuine world class riders riders that you know had been in world finals or or in in their world team cup squad or or, or whatever you know, and and they were all class riders. So yeah, it, it very rarely was there a, a necessarily a surprise or an upset because you just felt that anybody on their day could go and win those meetings. You made history in 1993 and you qualified for your first world final, but the thing that made history was that you were the first son of a former world finalist to also qualify for a world final, and it was in Pocking in, in Germany, which must have been an interesting place to go at that time because just a, a few years down the road from the wall coming down and uh, Germany was obviously uh, quite a transitional place to be at, at, at that time and um, probably quite a different track to, to the likes of um, Ipswich and uh, and Brandon and wherever you'd been riding in, in this country too. Uh, yeah, it was different. I mean, fortunately doing the under 21 stuff, um, you know, I travelled quite a bit in my speedway career sort of prior to that. So so that that was good. It, it sort of got me used to the, the, the various um, different aspects of, of being in these different countries, particularly at that time, as you say, you know, things, things were changing quite rapidly and in the late 80s, early 90s. So, um, but yeah, I was, I was kind of well prepared in that respect. Um, I had traveled quite a bit, uh, which was, which was what the under 21 stuff was really good for. You know, it, it kind of moved you on quite quickly. So you, I think it was important to be a part of that. Um, and yeah, 93 Pocking World Final, um, all a bit of a whirlwind really. Qualified for the first, you know, for my first one, only three or four years in, into my career. And, um, you know that in itself for me was enough I thought you know it's great I've made it to a world final everybody tells me you know that, and there was there was lots of rounds involved to get there at that point um, and it, for me it included a couple of runoffs certainly I think the last stage in in Vetlander was a runoff with a, a quality bunch um, so I, I felt I'd achieved something just to get there and and um, you know Nigel was there alongside me and and um, I had Nicky Lanham Lee Lanham's um, brother working for me at the time. We, we, we were all quite young, relatively inexperienced in speedway terms when you looked around the, the pits for the world final. So um, whilst I wouldn't say we certainly weren't there to make up the numbers, I, I don't think we had overly high expectations and um, it all seemed to go quite well, really. We battled hard all day and uh, ended up on the podium. And in that meeting, you were going into it, obviously, as a British representative in a world final, which is obviously going to be a massive deal. But you were going into it with Gary Havelock, who was the reigning world champion as well. I mean, did that take some of the focus off you, having Javi in that final going in as the reigning champ and all the expectation perhaps on him? Yeah, there was. And and that probably helped me, actually, because there was, there was probably a lot of um, focus on Gary. He wasn't riding quite as well as he obviously had done in 92 when he was unstoppable. Um, but yeah, there, there was a lot of focus there and, and it, it, it took it off myself. Um, so I think that, that helped alleviate some of the pressure. And um, yeah, we just we, we just stuck to things. Things went well on the day. We didn't have any bike issues. We weren't really struggling to find out what was working and what wasn't. We made good decisions and um, just just fantastic you know Sam obviously famously went out on a different bike and finished last um to win it with 12 points and left myself and hands on on 11 to to scrap it out in a runoff but 
But I have to say, you know, podium, second or third really doesn't make any difference. You're either the winner or you're not. Um, but uh, a very enjoyable day. And obviously you'd performed at the highest level in the under-21s, but this was your introduction to the, the international scene, your first world final, finishing on the podium. You qualified for the subsequent world final in, in 1994, the last proper world final at Voyens, which didn't go quite as well. But then you were involved in the, the early incarnations of the Grand Prix and, and really introducing yourself to, to that international stage. Yeah, I'd sort of found my consistency um, at the sort of world level and, and um, it, it was going quite well. Um, Voyens was disappointing. You know, I wanted to build on, on the third place. Um, it was kind of almost the opposite to Pocking. We didn't make good decisions as far as the... the bike set up which bike indeed to ride and things so um yeah it, it wasn't ideal that one um but obviously we all knew that the grand prix series was coming up and again um everybody wanted to perform well not knowing what the lineup was going to be for the grand prix series and exactly how how we were all going to qualify for it so um you know sort of left voyance quite despondent quite disappointed but um you know as it was got into the grand prix series and it all went on from there and the 1995 um, Grand Prix series started at Roslav and, and you actually finished on the podium in your very first meeting. But um, the GP series have changed over the years, haven't they, in terms of the, the format and how they look. We had that era where you had to qualify from the first part of the meeting to reach the second part of the meeting. And then there was one with various finals um, involved in it. And, and obviously now it's, uh, as, as we know, it's uh, straight through and then semi-final and final. But the series itself has also changed because in the first year there was only six rounds and the British Grand Prix took place at, uh, at Hackney Wick. So uh, you know, the series as a whole has changed its look quite a lot. Yeah, well, there's, there's been three. The first, Initially, we, we you just went through um, the heats to four finals, I think, the D... C, B and A finals um, and then it got reincarnated to a, a thing where if you basically if you ran two last or, or two third third or last you, you were out um, that was not well received I, I don't think particularly by fans and certainly not by riders um, but the initial one was okay you know you just just went into the four different finals um, and uh, I, I think the system they've got now is is the best that's probably been used um, for the Grand Prix and we're on the cusp now of a, a new deal for the Speedway Grand Prix over the next 10 years, which is um, you know, going to be big for all Speedway, surely. But um, even in this last year, hearing how much some of the riders have been earning, particularly Bartosz Schmarschlik, for example, um, taking home the equivalent of half a million quid, not just from the Grand Prix, but from Polish Speedway as well. Certainly the uh, the pay and conditions have changed a little bit, haven't they? I mean, yeah, the, the, the top riders, um, the very top riders in, in the world now with Grand Prix and, and Sweden and, and, you know, they're generally doing Sweden, maybe Denmark and, of course, Poland, which is seen as the, the biggest league in the world quite quite rightly at the moment um yeah those those guys at the top of that are, are earning very very good money um makes me quite jealous really <laughs> <laughs> I suspect you're not the only one as well um, coming up then on Humans of Speedway we'll continue our chat with Chris Louie and next we turn our attention to the year of 1998 because Chris Louie didn't just become British champion in 1998 he was part of arguably the best British Speedway team of all time what was it like riding with some of the all time greats of the sport all on the way here on Humans of Speedway This is Humans of Speedway. I'm Ian Brannan and my guest in this episode is Chris Louie, who's current co-promoter of the Ipswich Witches, but a long history with the Ipswich Witches stretching back uh, pretty much his entire career. And in 1998, a team was assembled, which many argue is the best team uh, ever to grace the British League. And um, on this podcast where we've asked previous guests to name their dream team that they'd love to see in action and uh, Ipswich 1998 has been mentioned a number of times. Chris Louie was the captain of that side and um, it was a side that features the likes of Thomas Golub, um, Tony Ricardson in the year that he became world champion, uh, Scott Nichols, a very young Scott Nichols was part of that side as well and, uh, and, and, and yourself too and as I say many people say the best British team of all time. Yeah, I'd like to argue it's the best of all time in this country but <laughs> I would, not I? Um, 
It, I mean, it, yeah, it was fabulous. It was it was just such a fun year. Um, it reminded me very much. It was ten years on from my first season, which which actually on a on a I guess smaller scale um, in the in the second division was was the same. It was just good fun, full of confidence. Um, we went to every meeting, and you know you could you could see the look on the faces of riders, mechanics, management of the opposition. That as as you walked into the pits, they were kind of wondering how many they were going to lose by. So. Uh, it was. It has to be said. It was huge fun. I mean, yeah. When you look at that team, I think you had the Swedish champion, the Polish champion, the British champion, the under twenty one British champion, the Czech champion. Um, it, it just went on and on and on. I think myself, Tony, and um, Thomas were one, three, and five by the end of the season in the world. Um, yeah, it's hard to imagine teams like that in the near future but I hope we can get back to something like that and you were the the captain of of that team um Thomas Golub and uh well I was gonna say how do you how do you how do you um inspire riders like that who I mean Tony Rickardson was charging through the world at that point wasn't he as well and and Thomas Golub not far behind it took him a while to get his world title but you know these are all sort of top riders it's it sort of set it up and point it in the right direction pretty much is it that job it was, it was a strange um dynamic in that team um you know i my job as captain was never to inspire tony or thomas into doing their best <laughs> they were more than <laughs> capable of doing that themselves um it, it was to make sure that that certainly between myself tony and thomas that we got the best out of out of uh, sal um tony swab and Scott obviously being being um, sort of the youngster in the team, um, that that was the the focus for the three of us. Um, as far as the dynamic goes, at the top of the team, we 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 were very competitive. You know, in a in a sort of a um, in a good way, we were competitive. But you got to heat sort of fifteen um, at the end of the meeting, and you were paired with, or in my case, I was paired with um, nine times out of ten either either Tony or Thomas, and. Really, at that point, we'd, we'd generally speaking, we'd, we'd won the meeting, certainly at home and in a lot of cases away from home. And, and it was a case of beating your teammate by as much as possible so that he knew you, you meant business in the Grand Prix at the weekend, that sort of thing. So um, it, it was a strange dynamic, but it worked very well. And well, that's it. It's which are the 1998 Elite League Champions. Well done to them. When what a reception down the back straight, Thomas Gollard. Well, he wins the final race then, or the heat number 11 rather. And it's the race that gives the title to Ipswich this evening. Well done to them. They move into an unassailable 20-point lead. The trophy you won for winning the league, though, was was a proper speedway trophy back then. It was, uh, you know, a tyre mounted on a, on, a, on a plinth. And we don't, we don't see many trophies like that these days. No, we don't. And there's a, there's a very special story to that particular trophy that year because um, it developed a terrible smell. And uh, we, we couldn't quite work out what it was um, until we found out that Shane Parker had put a, a kipper in there um, before it was presented to us. <laughs> Why doesn't that surprise me? No, it didn't surprise us at the time either, but it just took too long to find out. By then, the smell was dreadful. Unbelievable. Well, we do have a Shane Parker episode from way back when if people uh, want to catch up with uh, with that but you you listen to the Shane Parker episode and and yeah you'll hear because there was all sorts of japes that went on because he he rode for Kings Lynn and um Ipswich over the time didn't he and and, and I think yeah. he was always wise to each other's uh, you know each of the the tricks that went on I suppose with tracks and all sorts of stuff driving tractors hosing down Kevin and uh, all these kind of things yeah, the the relationship between Kingsley and Ipswich was never lost on Shane. You know, having ridden for both of them, he he fully appreciated um, what each of them thought about each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you you um, you regained the the British title in in two thousand. Um, which which one is the is the one that that that's sweeter than the other because I think sometimes riders win a trophy or whatever it is and because of the whirlwind that surrounds the first one that sometimes they they enjoy the second the best um I mean I enjoyed them both um obviously on the night um and and just winning the event it was something that obviously you know you you set targets in your career and a national title is is certainly one of them, along with you know, world titles and, and, and club titles and various other things. So um, I, I know that, that winning the British title always meant an awful lot to me, as I sort of said at the beginning of this, that it, that it was such a big day. It was a massive thing. 
Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know really. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed, obviously, the first one, and, and that is special because it's a target you set yourself, and, and then to achieve it is is great to hold that trophy aloft. Um, the second one, I seem to remember, uh, it rained all night from the very beginning to the very end, and the track was quite difficult. Um, and I'd always been told that I couldn't couldn't ride difficult tracks, so I, I think there was a certain amount of pride in that one, pulling it off in difficult conditions. And you know, I had a point to prove that I, I could do it, and. Um, you know they they were they were great years. I mean, at that time it seemed like myself and Mark seemed to share the title. He would he would win it one year, then me, then him, then me, and it sort of went on like that. So um, and and you've seen it in more recent times, um, in particular with with Chris Harrison Scott, obviously. So uh, yeah, that, that's how how it was going. But no, it's something that that I'm very very proud of, and I won two, and Dad only won one, which I often remind him of. <laughs> and what's the re- what's the reply when you remind him? <laughs> well, he hasn't really got a comeback because he got a third in the world, and so did I. So there's there's not not nowhere else to go. <laughs> it's just that, Brit- that extra British title is what separates. Well, one you. thing I've got on him, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, talking about um, international speedway and and world speedway, of course, you were in the the one off world finals, but then the speedway Grand Prix series came along, and you rode in that from 1995 to 2001 regularly um, as um, a full-time GP rider, which probably a lot of people forget about those early days of the Speedway Grand Prix. But then 2001 was the year where Cardiff began and things changed massively uh, in terms of the scale of the meetings. And not only did you ride in the very first Cardiff Grand Prix, but you also rode in the very first heat of the very first Cardiff Grand Prix. So really making new ground. What did you think, though, of the idea when it was first mooted that they were going to put a temporary track in a massive stadium like that? And, uh, you know, that was going to be the future of, of, of Grand Prix Speedway in this country? Probably like everybody else when it was announced. I think it was announced at a British Grand Prix in Coventry. And uh, when it was announced, you know, there was a lot of sort of shock horror on faces. And um, I was probably no different to 99% of other people who said, well, that will never work. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's on the calendar. It's still on the calendar. It's the biggest, I would argue, biggest speedway meeting in the world. Um, and, and it's been fantastic. And, you know, I was lucky, obviously, to be in the first one. What a night. The biggest night in British speedway since the Halcyon days of Wembley nearly 20 years ago. 24 of the world's top riders, one of the world's best stadia. And, well, around 40,000 fans here have crammed to get in. And, and it's an experience that, you know, I'll never forget walking out um, to that noise and that atmosphere of, of that stadium with the roof shut um, really was quite special. And, and it, it never got any less um, in, in the other couple of meetings that I did in Cardiff and then also working for TV. You know, it, it just walking out there with my headset on to, to go out and do my work for, for Sky Television, um, you still couldn't help but, you know, have the hairs go up on the back of your neck because it's just such an atmosphere, particularly when you're in the bottom of it, in the heart of it with all those people around you. Yeah, and the the roof being closed just changes the whole sound of the sport as well, doesn't it? The engines sound different, the crowd obviously sounds different. You've got uh, and and you've got the knowledge as well, knowing that it's not going to get rained off, which is uh, another beautiful thing that you know you're definitely going to be going ahead. And uh, the amount of people I know that when we spoke to Scott Nichols, you know, he said that really for a lot of the riders, it's dealing with the size of the crowd and the occasion is is as big a challenge as dealing with the riders that you're, you're battling against on the track. It's the whole thing, and it's exactly what makes it special. There's not one element that makes Cardiff stand out from other big you know, Grand Prix and other big Speedway events. It's the whole thing. It starts when you arrive in Cardiff. Um, it, you know, Cardiff is a relatively small uh, city that's that's condensed all around the stadium pretty much. Um, so as soon as you walk towards the stadium, you, you've got hordes of people, you know, that, that are blowing their air horns and asking for signatures and taking photographs. And, uh, you know, it, it just starts with that, which makes it feel different to many other stadiums that you generally just drive to and you, you get in and that's it sort of thing. Um, so it starts there and, and then you've got the pit area, which is in, in the underbelly of the stadium. It's not like any other pit area in, in any stadium that I've, you know, been to. Obviously, there have been one or two others since Cardiff, but um, and it's just this long, sort of not dark, but but sort of enclosed area that 
everyone just seems on top of each other. They're all grouped there together. And then when you do ride out or you walk out for the parade or drive out, whatever it is, you go up up that hill and then it just opens up to the most amazing noise and, and visuals and everything in the stadium. It's everything. It's just a whole different ball game, and even the fact that the noise is different because the roof is shut. There's so many different elements that make it what it is. It's a one-off for sure. And it's great to have it back on the calendar as well, because I think there's a bit of concern as uh, as there tends to be sometimes when when meetings aren't held uh, or clubs, as we've seen, uh, you know, stop for, for whatever reason. I think that with the change of the, the the rights in the Grand Prix, a lot of people worried that Cardiff might might go. But I think it's great to have it back, and not just one meeting, but two meetings as well. It's going to make for a a different but um, exciting weekend for Speedway fans. Yeah, it's massive. I mean, you know, the, the pandemic obviously changed um, a lot of things for a lot of people, and 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 it, it, you know, we lost Cardiff because of it. But um, uh, I think it was always it was always going to come back. It was never off off the the table forever. And um, Discovery Events have obviously now launched their vision and 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 what they're proposing to do in the future for World Speedway. And it was it was massive you know I, I watched the whole thing through and um really really looking forward to to what they're going to do with the with the sport um particularly from the under 16s the under 21 and of course the youth um programs that they're looking at and yeah i i, I think it's in very safe hands and then um inevitably the the point came where riding was probably not the the best thing for you to be doing you you had um, some quite bad injuries and natural progression for you with your dad of course was uh, a promoter at Ipswich was to 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 join that side of the family business if you like and 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 yourself become involved in running the club and you've been promoter and you've been team manager of course as as well Um, tell us about that transition from from rider to uh, to management if you like well first of all I can say that the riding days were much easier (laughs) <laughs> um, all by the injuries, obviously. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'd I'd actually retired um, twice. <laughs> uh, I did, did did retire in two thousand and two when I broke my back. Uh, that was early early part of the Swedish season, so that that was like mid April, I guess, end of April. Um, and then um, I had two, the rest of two thousand and two out. Jo- joined Dad at the club for two thousand and three as a promoter. Um, and then we were building the team for 2004 and there was one spot left. Um, my average or my last average fitted the bill. I liked the look of the team. We were struggling to find another rider. So, uh, I made the decision to come out of retirement and, and carry on, which, um, I did reasonably successfully for another four years, another injury, um, in 2008. Um, it, it was just another injury cause I'd, I'd uh, done a, a kneecap and a collarbone and one or two other things in that time, which, to be to be fair, in the in the main part of my career, I sort of steer clear of all those types of injuries. So it, it just started to gang up on me a bit. The the body was getting older and harder to to recover quickly from. And then then there was the shoulder injury, two thousand and eight, which just sort of eventually ended my career. Um, I was told at the time it was a career ending injury. I, I think had I been younger and and you know felt I still wanted to achieve in the sport, then. I think I would have come back from it, to be honest, um, and, and could have come back. It would have been very, very hard recovery, but could have come back from it. But at that point, yeah, it was time to uh, 
throw the towel in and tie the other side of it. And I think we've seen that with a few people who um, still live the excitement of Speedway through through management or being involved in whatever way. And I suspect for you, it's one of those things you were never going to be far away from Speedway, particularly with your family involvement at Ipswich as well. But even with that knowledge, what are the things that perhaps surprised you or the things that you learnt um, going from being a rider to, to being a, a co-promoter or a team manager that maybe you didn't appreciate when you were an out-and-out rider? Um, well, I, I think that's probably hard to answer on the basis that that over the years, um, you know, the sports ebbed and flowed. And over the years in, in my time, the transition period from rider to promoter, it, it's got tougher to promote. You know, you're running the club on the red line all of the time. Um, there isn't a big surplus of cash. If there was, we'd still have the top riders riding in this country. Um so, uh, yeah, running the sport, even in my relatively short promoting um, time span of, what is it, 10 years, maybe long, slightly longer, um, it's got tougher and tougher and tougher. And, and then the last couple of years in particular have, have been the toughest. We've had, you know, the pandemic to contend with um, alongside Poland deciding that, that, you know, that they're going to do their contracts that uh, stop riders sort of riding in, in the many leagues. Um and the money that, that they've been able to pay, you know, they've engineered their position. So I'm, I'm, this is not getting the violin out and saying, oh, Poland's, it's all Poland's fault. They've, they've played a great game and they are where they are. It's our job now to, to look at them as they did us 15 years ago when we had the Sky TV contract um, or the first media contract. Um, and they said that's, that's where we need to be. They've done that. They've copied our, our model and, and, and vastly improved it. So it's time to battle back. Some of the other problems that have been encountered have been both related to COVID, of course, COVID restrictions, but also Brexit affecting um, travel between other other countries around Europe and, and riders being able to get visas where previously they could just come, but now there's a big um, application process involved. And you yourself have been victim to that at Ipswich with, for example, Nikolai Clint, um, finding that um, you know the, the logistics just didn't work out um, this season. That's not to say that they won't in in a subsequent season. And also the restrictions in Poland as well, with the with the top league restricting riders in where they can ride if they're part of the extra league. What can British Speedway do to uh, be more in command of uh, and, and in control of their destiny and, and future? Yeah, um, a lot of things have sort of converged all at the same time to make life, you know, a lot more difficult than, than maybe it has been. Um, you know, the, the thing with the pandemic, you used Nikolai as an example, um, hopefully was a one-off. You know, Nikolai wouldn't have just jumped ship and, and changed his mind if there wasn't very good reason and the, and the pandemic and everything that went around that and the travel restrictions was that reason. So, um, yeah, th- th- this year was made so much more difficult in so many ways because of so many different things, you know, the pandemic, Brexit, um, and of course, Poland's decision. So, uh, you know, it's something that, that we've got to get over, um, we will get over and, and we've got to improve our lot. And, and, you know, there's, there's lots of things, discussions and things going on right now that I feel will enable that to happen. Um, and probably, speed that pro- that progress up um, from our point of view quicker than I thought possibly it could do. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm very positive that the next couple of months is going to bring about some change that's going to allow the sport in this country to get back to where it, it belongs really at, at the top of World Speedway. And from a promoter's point of view, the the million dollar task really is to, to get people through the gates, isn't it? Get new fans through the gates, people who've never experienced the sport and get them to attend a few times and hopefully get them into being a, a Speedway fan, um, as well as, of course, getting the people in who are yeah, what you might call established fans. Um, how do we do that? How do we get new fans through the gates in this day and age when there's so many other uh, ways to spend your time and, and, and ways to spend your money? Yeah, the sport needs to make itself attractive, certainly to the younger generation. Um, we, we've got a bit, of a bit of a gap there. Uh, that situation is improving, albeit slowly. Um, there's so many things around it. Um, you know, the sport's got to get um, just simply more competitive in this country. Uh, we've got to get you know some of the top riders back. We've, we've got to um, you know get our crop of British 
um, young riders moving faster and becoming, you know, stars for the future. Um, and, and it's, I don't think it's um, any coincidence that, you know, the sport um, crowd numbers have, have dipped along with, with losing clubs. We've got gaps around the country, you know, and when you don't have these local derbies, um, which a lot of clubs don't have anymore, uh, you know, you, you're going to, you're going to lose fan base up and down the country just because of the big gaps we've got around the country in terms of no speedways. So, um, you know, I, we've got to find ways of bringing um, tracks back. And I don't, I don't just mean old ones because most of those tracks have gone and so are their stadiums, but we, we, need to, we need to be building new tracks around the country and filling those gaps. Coming up then on Humans of Speedway, we speak to Chris Louie about his dream Speedway meeting. Our Speedway Paradise feature continues, and in that we ask a series of six or seven questions about how our guests' dream Speedway meeting would look. From the track they would race on, to who would make their dream team, and who would referee the meeting and the rules they would change. All on the way on Humans of Speedway. This is Humans of Speedway, which is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network, where you can find your next favourite podcast, football, cricket, boxing, NFL, and there's more Speedway content too in the form of No Breaks, No Fear, the official British Speedway podcast. And uh, you can go back and listen to some of those previous episodes because, yes, whilst we're discussing the matches of that particular week, some of the guests that we've spoken to have still got great things to say that's still very relevant, no matter when you listen to them. We've been very lucky to be joined by uh, the two British champions from this year, the uh, senior British champion Adam Ellis and the under-21 British champion Tom Brennan. We also spoke to Sam Masters. All big episodes from this past year. Go back and listen to those at your leisure. Right now, we're going to design the dream Speedway meeting of our guest in this episode, Chris Louie, an Ipswich legend, in fact, captain of that 1998 Ipswich team that has been mentioned in this feature by previous guests as being the ultimate opposition, the side they'd love to see back together again. Well, will Chris Louie nominate himself is the question. I wish I'd prepared myself for this. (laughs) Okay, um, (laughs) let's crack on with the first question for you then. And what we're going to ask you is, if you're holding your Dream Speedway meeting, if you're going to choose a track to race on just for the surface or the shape of the shale, regardless of the rest of the facilities the stadium might have, just purely for your racing, which track would you hold it on? Mm, there's uh, probably, uh, there's a few and, and none, none of them, are, uh, neither of them would be on the radar, I guess. Um, I always enjoyed my racing at Gustav in Germany. Um, you know, I know it's been seen on the European calendar and stuff, and, and I don't think it's always shown its best racing, to be fair. But um, it was always a good, good fun track to race on. Um, I really like the track it on Gotland, Bissena, when I rode there for for the Swedish side. Um, it, it was a one-off track. It was different. It was quite alien to most riders. It was a good home track to have, but it was it was really good fun. Um, don't know where else I could say. Well, have I got to pick one? You could merge two together if you wanted. <laughs> okay, we'll merge those two together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, Gotland and Gustro. And what was it about them? Just the speed or the shape? Or um, not, They weren't, neither were particularly fast. They were both, um, it, probably the shape, because they're, they're both similar in as much as they're sort of almost circles. Um, and it enabled you to make lines... Um, that ordinarily you, you wouldn't sort of think of using. So you, you could make straights in corners and corners in straights. And um, and that's what makes it hard to defend on. So it just made them good racetracks. You know, when they were prepared right, they were they were perfect. Um, I guess I could liken um, for that sort of similar reason in terms of the, the length of the straight compared to the corners. Bellevue is a bit like that, albeit much bigger than either of those two. Um Again, the proportion of the straights to the corners mean mean that you you don't have to necessarily stick to straights and corners. You know, you can you can turn early or late, and you can do lots have a lot more options. and And we see that at Bellevue in the big meetings. We you know the Bellevue fans are lucky they see it week in week out mm-hmm. for league meetings. So um, you know, and, and it's what we can look forward to for the Speedway of Nations coming up. So uh, yeah, I, I think for me, I, I've done a lot of um, 
Google research on on uh, Google Earth, looking at the uh, length and width of tracks, and there's there's a ratio point that, in my mind, makes for the for the perfect speedway track. And um, you know the work that that Chris Morton in particular and David Gordon did when they got the Bellevue project off the ground, they 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 looked at what it was going to take and they found the perfect recipe in my mind. And we spoke to Chris Morton um, a few episodes ago, actually. So if you've uh, not listened to that yet, dear listener, then uh, do take that into account. But he never really shared a a formula for a perfect track. And I think you're the first person to sort of suggest that there is a, a, you know, a magic formula almost for uh, for the perfect track there. Yeah, a lot. I mean, you know, I know Chris Morton was was um, he spent many, many hours looking at various tracks. You know, I, I know it came down to sort of basing it on the old Hyde Road and, and Torren at the time. Um, and, and maybe in that respect, he felt lucky. I don't think so. I think he knew what he was doing. And uh, and I've looked at it um, since then. And, and yeah, there, there seems to be the perfect uh, ratio or, or very small sort of um, window where that ratio works perfectly in, in my mind. And that's that's taking my experience of racing on tracks and watching racing on tracks. Cool. Okay, that's a, a good little bit of insight. And if you, and if we're going to put your dream hybrid track into a stadium, uh, a good speedway stadium, which stadium would you put that track in? If I had to blend all of what I've just said together, um, okay, this this is probably what you're after. I'll give you one track in one stadium. We'll just call it Bradford. Ah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's such an atmosphere because it's mm. a big bowl in the ground it's it's great yeah yeah and and when it was full and it was rarely full but the world finals i went to there and you know it was just incredible it's like a different place when when it was full of thousands of people and and i think back in the 1950s it had the the record for the biggest attendance at any sporting event in the country ever i think for a while there's like a hundred thousand people in there was like a hundred and something thousand people yeah Ridiculous, like the 1950s when uh, when health and safety no, didn't exist. Exactly, no regard for safety whatsoever. But everyone had a great day. <laughs> so your your all time one to seven. Then your your um, team of riders can be any rider, any era. Um, no points limits or anything like that. No signing oh. on fees. No no points. Uh, money to pay. Oh, that 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 sounds like a promoter's dream. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, that's a tough one. I could easily say 98 because it was so much fun, but that would only be a one to six, so that probably doesn't count. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, there's there's just a bunch of riders that um, I enjoyed, even as a competitor, and I wasn't a competitor to them all, but that I just enjoyed watching. Um, in my era, obviously, I raced against them, Um but enjoyed watching was was Mark Laurel, um, Henke Gustafsson, uh, for sure. Um, outside of my era, there was guys that I just really admired for the way they rode, like Dennis Agalos, um, John Cook, you know, hugely entertaining guy. Um, I'd have to say uh, Dad, obviously, because he's the reason that I even got involved <laughs> in the sport in the first place. Um, and anybody with a nickname like the Tiger, uh, you don't get that anymore. So <laughs> I know, I know, <laughs> I couldn't great. leave him out. Um, I don't think I could leave Jeremy out, Jeremy Doncaster either, um, part of the family, and um, you know, a world number three um, w- was fabulous at, at both grass track, long track, and and uh, speedway. Obviously, how many have I named there? Are you keep the one, list? two, three, four, five, six. Oh no, there's another one to go. Um, who can I go with for the last spot? I probably, as boring as it may be, um, just for because he 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 was my era, and for it's difficult because Tony Ricardson's won more world championships than anybody. But um, I think I'd have to say Hans Nielsen to be honest for for how he went about his business. Um, he had. As a competitor, he had an aura about him that made it very difficult to beat him. <laughs> yes, yeah, I remember. I remember watching him, and uh, I think I mentioned before, and you know, 
especially at Bradford, there weren't there weren't many away teams who who came particularly confident, really at, at Bradford always. And but Hans Nielsen was just absolutely rock solid every single every single time yeah. you saw him. It was, was it was like great wherever he went. <laughs> yeah. So but then I could say you know Eric Gunderson. There's there's too many yeah. sevens, not enough. I'm afraid. <laughs> just take seven out of that, and there could be many many more. <laughs> it would be a decent lineup, that's for sure. Um, if you're going to pick a referee, then which which referee would you go for? Uh, Graham Brody. He'd done my testimonial by a special request. He did Dad's testimonial by a special request. Just a all round nice guy. Never had an agenda, um, and you know, you just felt even if a decision went against you, it was hard to pick up the phone and swear at him like you might some other referees because. You just knew that it, he either didn't see it or it was it was his opinion, and, and you just accepted it. And I think it was the way he dealt with problems and the way he dealt with riders when he had to. Um, it, it, there was no fuss about it. And if you were going to make Graham's life easier or harder um, by changing a rule in the current Speedway rulebook, what would be the rule that you would like to to see tweaked and what would be the tweak that you make to it? If I was going to make a suggestion, uh, as far as I'm concerned, if you don't touch the tapes, let it go. (laughs) Um, You know, I I was a, a rider that worked hard to work out the referee as the meeting went on, you know. Um, I mean, I watched riders today when, when you know, when we're at meetings and, and some riders really don't watch any racing other than the races they're in. Um, I watched every race. You know, I was, I was disappointed if there was a panic on in the pits and I missed a race because I wanted to make 15 starts, not five or four. Um, you know, I wanted to, to be well aware of what I thought the ref was going to do when the green light came on and, in that period before the tapes um, went up. So so I was, you could say with that in mind, I was a bit of an anticipator, um, but you have to you know, take every advantage you possibly can. It's a, a short race and it's much easier to be in front from the beginning. So um, yeah, I, I, I would suggest that if a rider doesn't touch the tapes, you know, the rule should still be that he can't move, but if he doesn't touch the tapes, um, then he's, he's fair play to him. And that would make quite a difference because it would take away the the um doubts perhaps maybe some referees have when they when when a rider just just makes a great start which is yeah, often uh, the way. exactly that um i think a rider should be rewarded if he can guess when the ref's going to take put the tapes up because that doesn't happen half as often as people think it does you know a lot of what's pulled back is just good starts um good starts on the basis that the rider is able to fine tune in with the referee and pretty much know when he's going to push the button. And some riders, uh, particularly I, I noticed in Germany with German referees, and I don't ask me why particularly in Germany, I think it was because of the lack of meetings that they referee. There wasn't so many meetings in Germany. Um, you could actually determine when the tapes were going to go up as a rider. You know, if, if you moved very quickly, they their automatic reaction was to push the button and let the tapes up. So... <laughs> Um, you know, and the, but as far as I'm concerned, the start is a big thing in speedway, and it, it should be a part of the the sport in terms of of riders and learning what to do. So, I'm all for yes, the rule is don't move, but yes, if you if you uh, make a great start and you don't touch the tapes, that's fine. Okay, and um, a team from any time in history, from any league in the world, to be the opposition to your team so this is an actual team that existed so this is the one that opens it up for Ipswich 98 potentially <laughs> well I think if, if you're putting that team together there's a few there that I didn't really get to race against so I'm going with 98 oh yeah so that you can actually be involved in it and you, you can race against John Cook and Dennis Sigalos and, and all that I can race against me dad and we can prove once and for all who's better <laughs> and I know there's a huge contingent out there that will say the Tiger win will win hands down so <laughs> yeah, but are you both on laydowns or uprights? You can ride what you want. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks, Chris, for joining us. It's been it's been great speaking to you for the last um, hour or so, and and uh, thanks for sharing some of those stories and um, and all the best for for next year and um, onwards and upwards in uh, in speedway, as they say. Absolutely, my pleasure, Ian. 
My thanks to Chris Louie for joining us on Humans of Speedway and hope you've enjoyed listening to his tales as well. Now, if you are new to Humans of Speedway, the good news for you is there's a whole first series to work your way back through. And if you are an Ipswich fan, well, the very first episode was with Scott Nichols, seven-time British champion. So uh, hear from him in that one way back in the black and white days. We've also spoken to Shane Parker, of course, has uh, spent plenty of time at Ipswich as well. Jeremy Dong caster features and Gary Havelock and Kelvin Tatum all riders that I think we've mentioned in this episode that we've already chatted to Chris Morton another one as well the Bellevue Aces legend work your way back through those previous episodes and I hope you enjoy them and we will keep the new ones coming on a regular basis right now on Humans of Speedway just uh, like and subscribe the podcast on whichever app you use if you haven't already leave us a review if you enjoyed it that would be good as well and we'll catch you on the next episode of Humans of Speedway. Sports Social Podcast Network. It's time to take your body care routine to the next level. Introducing Osea's bestseller body care set, the perfect companion for your summer travels. This four-piece kit transforms dry skin to silky, soft, and glowing. It features travel sizes of Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil and Body Butter, clinically proven to improve skin elasticity, along with their anti-aging body balm and salts-of-the-earth body scrub. And to top it off, it's packed in a vegan leather bag, making it a must-have for all your summer adventures. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat yourself to glowing, healthy skin this summer with clean vegan skincare and body care from Osea. Right now, you can get the best seller's body care set valued at $78 for 33% off. Use code SUMMER to save an additional 10%. That's an additional 10% off at OCEAMalibu.com code SUMMER.